Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. In Mark chapter 3, you read what I said when we studied this text earlier. uh, One of the saddest verses in all the Bible. In verse 21 of the third chapter, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Tonight we look at a text that is somewhat similar, that again has some of the most tragic verses in all the Bible. Uh, in particular with how the family of Jesus and his own hometown responded to him. A text that I have given the title that comes right out of the scriptures, Jesus, a prophet without honor. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, studying through verse 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there. He could not do, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. It is a well-known statement made popular by Jesus. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Jesus will make this statement on two occasions according to the Bible, both in Luke chapter 4, verse 24, and John chapter 4, verse 44, and in the account that we have here. Applied to you and to me, that is, someone might not honor us in our own household or in our own country, that certainly would be the occasion of sadness and and disappointment. But applied to Jesus, uh, it is utterly tragic, and it has eternal consequences. In fact, the consequences are so great that verse 6 tells us that our Savior himself marveled at such unbelief. This, by the way, is the second time Jesus has been to his hometown of Nazareth. And as best we can tell, it will be his last visit as well. Previously, he had gone back home, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, and that visit did not go well either. Uh, Initially, the text teaches us that they were impressed by his preaching, Luke 4, verse 22. But then the town turned upon him, and they became enraged. And in fact, the end of the section informs us that they attempted to murder him. And yet in spite of having been treated in this way perhaps six months or a year earlier, Jesus returned, and this time he brings his disciples with him, and it could be indeed described as a painful training visit. 
Personally, I think he was hopeful that they would be different this time in their response. After all, this is his hometown. These are people he grew up with. Uh, This is where his mother and his sisters and his brothers live. And so maybe this time things will be different. But unfortunately, we learn from our text he will be disappointed again. As we think about how Jesus was treated by those who thought, now hear me, who thought they knew him best. It might be good for you and me to reflect upon how we respond to Jesus, how we see Jesus, how we treat this great servant king. The fact of the matter is, uh, it is possible to get so close to Jesus that you might miss him for who he is. You might think you really know him when the fact is, you really don't. And so it's imperative that we, and we're learning this today in the greater theological world with some recent books that are coming out, it's vitally important that you let the Bible set the agenda for who Jesus is and who he's not. It's vitally important that any understanding you have at Jesus be informed by the Bible. In other words, it's not that Jesus is who you hope he is. It's not who you wish he were or who you want him to be. Uh, That's not your call to make. Uh, You don't set the Jesus agenda. God does, and God does it well in his word. Now, the text before us, I think we can actually build our study tonight around three questions as they relate to the person and the work of Jesus. So the first question that I would raise, you find in the first three verses of chapter 6, when you consider Jesus... Are you only amazed? You see, the fact of the matter is, no one hardly is ever neutral about Jesus. Everyone has a reaction. Everyone has an opinion. Uh, But unfortunately, as I said just a moment ago, many times our opinions and our judgments fall short of the full biblical portrait that we find in the Bible. In fact, I don't think our day is really all that unique, but we live in a time where people want to take basically a cafeteria approach to Jesus and a cafeteria approach to theology. Oh, I'll take what I like, but I'll discard what I find distasteful. I I will take the teachings on heaven, but I'll reject the Bible's teaching on hell. Oh, I'll accept the fact that Jesus is the Savior, but I will not buy into the fact that people have to know that He's the Savior. In fact, as long as you're doing the best you can with what you have, certainly that's going to be enough for the God that I conceive of and the God that I wish to worship and the God that basically I'm fashioning in my own image. Jesus has just performed a number of miracles, as we have noted previously. He has stilled the storm. Uh, he has healed the, uh, the demon-possessed man. Uh, he has healed the woman that had been bleeding for 12 years. He has raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so now the text says he went away from there, and he came to his hometown. Well, we learn back from chapter 1, verse 9, and also chapter 1, verse 24, that his hometown was a little dippy town named Capernaum. It was about 20 miles southwest of his hometown, or southwest of Nazareth. And as I said, he had made a previous visit there back in chapter 4, verses 16 and 30, through the Gospel of Luke. Now you say, Danny, you were a little bit unkind a moment ago. You said that, uh, that it is a, uh, Nazareth is a, a little dippy town. Well, the, the historians point out that at this particular time, probably no more than 150 to 200 people lived there. 
And when you scavenge the ancient literature, you discover that this little town of Nazareth is not mentioned even one time in the Old Testament. It is not mentioned even one time in the Apocrypha, that section of books that you find in the Catholic Bible. It's never mentioned in any of the rabbinic literature that we have discovered uh, in the ancient world. No, the only notice that it receives is in the New Testament. And therefore, it's not surprising that Nathaniel would say in John chapter 1 and verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, the answer is yes. In fact, the answer is a wonderful, resounding yes. Not only can something good come out of Nazareth, something great can come out of Nazareth as well. And it did in the person of a man named Jesus. Now, what is it? Concerning this man, Jesus, that should amaze us. But note very carefully how I phrase these three observations. Number one, his teachings should astonish you. But that's not enough. On this return trip, the Bible says there in verse 1 that his disciples followed him. And so he is in essence going to, I think, give them some field training. In fact, I think what Jesus experiences here in Nazareth is going to also be echoed in what he warns them of in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, which we will see next week when he sends them out on their uh, preaching and healing assignment. In fact, he tells us there in that previous, in that text, uh, verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet for a testimony against them so if the disciples go out and are rejected they will immediately recall well so was the master so was the savior and as the bible teaches a servant is not above his master and so what he has encountered they can anticipate as well well, the text says he is followed by his disciples. And in verse 2, as would be expected, it's on the Sabbath. And he again uh, to, begins to teach, and of course, where we would think, in the synagogue. And initially, just like the first time, the response is quite positive. Many heard him. They were astonished. The word astonished means to be amazed. It means to be overwhelmed. They were struck. By what they were hearing from the son of Mary, chapter 6, verse 3, and what Luke says in Luke 4, 22, as the one who is the son of Joseph. However, their amazement quickly turns to skepticism and even ridicule. And you see clearly in the text, in rapid succession, five questions that Mark records that came from the mouths of those in his hometown. Question number one, where did this man get these things? Question number two, what is the wisdom given to him? Question number three, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Question number four, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And question number five, and are not his sisters here with us? These questions are intentionally meant to be slights. Uh, they are intentionally meant to be disparaging. Uh, they, amazingly, don't deny what he has said. And to my astonishment, they don't deny what he did. In other words, do they deny that he's saying these incredible things? No. Do they deny that he stilled the storm, healed the demoniac, healed the leper, raised a little girl from the dead, and healed a woman who bled for 12 years? No. 
There is no denial in these verses of his doing these incredible things, which makes them, in my judgment, and makes some of us, perhaps in the Bible's judgment, all the more responsible and all the more culpable. You really believe he said these things? You really believe he did these things? You really believe he died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins, and yet you don't call him and follow him as Lord? Are you kidding me? Who in their right mind would respond in that kind of a way? And so these questions make it very clear that they're skeptical, they're, they're cynical, they're, they're ridiculing him. It's almost as if there is an echo of chapter 3 and verse 22 where it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. In other words, if he did not get these things from God, if he did not get this wisdom from God, if he does not do these mighty works from God, then who? How? And interestingly, they choose to leave the question open. But nowhere do they say, oh, we know. No one can do these things except God be with him. That they did not say. In other words, in Jesus' day, some people chalked up what he did and said to the power of Satan. Uh, that very seldom happens in our day. Uh, today, people are more likely to say, well, he does what he, he does, and he said what he said, especially he said what he said, because he had this great intellect. Uh, he was just a very witty sage who knew how to turn a phrase and thereby uh, entertain the people. And so the fact matter is, in the ancient world, they were at least astonished by his teachings. In our day and time, even those who deny the supernatural, even those who deny his uh, resurrection from the dead, will still admit, you know, he was a great teacher. And so his teachings should astonish all of us, but that's not enough. But number two... His miracles may captivate you, but that is not enough. At this point in Mark's gospel, the miracles are at a rather high number and growing. I've listed ten of them for you. Going back to chapter 1, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, chapter 1, verse 29 through 31. He healed many more in Capernaum, chapter 1, verse 32 through 34. He healed a leper, chapter 1, verse 40 through 45. He healed a parallels man, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A man with a deformed hand, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Many again, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. He calmed the storm and sea, chapter 4, 35 through 41. He delivered the Gerizim's demoniac, chapter 5, 1 through 20. He healed the woman with who bled for 12 years, chapter 5, 25 through 34. He's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, chapter 5, 35 through 43. And once more, I think it's very, 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 very instructive. His hometown does not deny all these things. And yet, even in spite, or even, in, even though they, they agree and believe that he's a miracle worker, that still does not bring them to faith. They just, in their mind, could not reconcile what he has done with who they are convinced he must be. Deny his miracles, and they would say, No. Receive him as the Messiah? No. Believe he is the Christ? Are you kidding? Are you serious? We watched him grow up. We watched him fall and skin his knee. 
We watched him learn the, the, the trade of a carpenter at the knee of his father. We know who he is. And one thing we are certain about, he is not the Messiah. So we may not be able to explain his miracles. We may not be able to explain his teaching, but we know who he is. And just to cut to the chase, he is a nobody from nowhere, just like all of us. And again, I think the teaching point is very instructive. Apart from the eyes of faith, his teachings will not be enough to bring you to trust him. And apart from the eyes of faith, his great miracles will not be enough to bring you to faith. No, apart from faith, his teachings will simply amaze you. And his miracles may even offend you, though they should be, as I like to say, billboards that scream loud and clear. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Believe him, trust him, and follow him. So his teaching should astonish you, but that's not enough. His miracles may captivate you, but that is not enough. But then number three, and boy, it really gets ugly here. His background will not impress you, but so what? Verse 3, the derisive comments reach a peak. Look at them. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense against him. Is this not the carpenter? Jesus is nothing more than a commoner, they would say. Uh, he is a, a low-born artisan who, who worked with his hands. The Greek word is the Greek word tekton. It means someone who worked with wood, but it also could have contained the idea of someone who worked with metal and someone who also worked with stone. And so what they're simply saying is, look, we, we know who he is. We know the trade that he has uh, cultivated. He works with wood. He works with metal. He works with stone. Uh, he, he makes plows and carts and yokes and wheels and doors and locks and tables. He makes lampstands and, and cabinets. He, he builds things and he, he repairs things. He, he is a handyman with a carpenter's belt and a hammer. He's a carpenter. He doesn't have a Ph.D. He doesn't have an MDiv. He doesn't have a B.A. Heck, for all we know, he doesn't even have a high school degree. He's a nobody from nowhere. He's a construction worker. Now, as I said last week, and I want to say again, and I forgot to bring it, David, but David uh, Lanier put me onto a, a Scottish poem that's very powerful about what kind of man he really was. Uh, as I say uh, in my own notes, he was no sissy, girly man who looked and acted like a 1960s hippie. That is not who he was. He was a carpenter. He was a man's man. He was strong. He was rugged. He was tough. He could take care of himself and then add to that that he's the son of God. And he could have just bluntly kicked anybody's tail, any place, any time, under any circumstances. All right? He didn't go around with long hair and a dress. That's not who he was. Those pictures that we have give such a jaundiced view of the man that he really was. He was a carpenter. But still, that was an occupation that is not impressive. And certainly, that is not the kind of upbringing that you would expect and attach to an esteemed rabbi. He's just a blue-collar worker. 
He's not the kind of guy that would be invited to black tie dinners by anyone. You know, Paul addressed this issue of perceiving Jesus incorrectly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16. After meeting the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road, the glorified Christ on the Damascus Road, he would later say this, From now on, uh, therefore, <clears throat> we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, <laughs> we regard him thus no longer. Paul's point is simply, you look at him with merely human external evaluation and you'll miss it. Yes, he was a carpenter. Yes, he was from Nazareth. Yes, as Isaiah 53 says, he wasn't all that impressive physically. But with the eyes of faith, you recognize him for something more than a mere man. You recognize him as the Son of God, the Christ, God in the flesh. The question of verse 3 is, is this not the carpenter? But then they extend the question, is this not the son of Mary? Now, commentators differ as to how we are to understand this. Some say this may be nothing more than an indication that Joseph, his father, had died by now. But others have argued, and I'm actually persuaded by this, that it was a cheap shot uh, at the scandal of his birth. In other words, they were reminding him in a not-so-subtle fashion that he was an illegitimate child born to a whore. That was their evaluation. Next question, are not his four brothers and sisters here with us? They were introduced back in chapter 3, verse 21, and then chapter 3, verse 31 and 32. James, the, the Hebrew name Jacob, Joseph or Joseph, they're the names, by the way, of two of the patriarchs. You will recall that from your Old Testament history. Judah and Simon were also names connected with the twelve sons, but also the names of two famous Jewish revolutionaries. And so as one man said, here is a family that by the way they named their children, by the way they named their sons, they were hoping for the rescue and the redemption of Israel. And by the way, here he is right in front of them. And they miss it. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary. He's got brothers by the name of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And the text says, and they took offense at him. In other words, once more, they're just emphasizing the fact that in our evaluation, you are a nobody from nowhere. And if anyone should know who you are, we should know who you are. You're not special. You're just one of us. You are a nobody with a nobody job. And hey, if I might be so blunt tonight, you are a bastard child. That's what we think of you. That's how we evaluate you. That's how we look at you. Now, again, before I go on, I know you're saying, whoa, I would never think of him in any of those kinds of ways. And I hope that you would not. But that doesn't mean you perceive him correctly. That does not mean that you see him for who he really is. You may have your own jaundiced views of Jesus that don't stack up with the Bible. It's amazing to me when you go to a bookstore and start looking at the titles on the shelf in the Christian section and you just reserve yourself to Jesus. You just see the incredible uh, plethora, boatload of different perspectives that contemporary people have about Jesus. 
And of course, the million dollar no, the billion dollar no, the eternal question is, which one is right? And the answer is really quite simple. The one that you find in this book. This is the correct portrait of Jesus. This is the correct perspective on Jesus. And again, not part of the Bible, but all the Bible. Even those parts of Jesus' teaching and even those parts of Jesus' personality and even those parts of Jesus' demands that you just don't like very well. You say, Danny, you're telling me sometimes Jesus says things you don't like? There are lots of times when Jesus says things I don't like. If I'd written the Bible, I'd have written it differently. If I could put words in his mouth, I'd have put different words in his mouth. I would have done that. Because some of it makes me uncomfortable. Some of it makes me nervous. Some of it I just don't know what, what to do with. And then yet I do know what to do with it. I believe it. I trust it. Even if I don't understand it. Why? Because he is God. And God by definition sets the agenda. Not Danny Aiken and not you. So if something needs to change, it's not Jesus. What needs to change and line up correctly is your perspective of Jesus based upon the Christian Scriptures. Best we can tell, Publius the Syrian in circa A.D., uh, circa B, uh, 2 B.C., is the first person to say, as best we can tell, and I quote, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And apparently, uh, this was the situation with the local boy makes good by the name of Jesus. He's just too ordinary. He's too commonplace. Our minds are made up about the homeboy, and we will not let the evidence get in our way, and nothing is going to change our mind. When you consider Jesus, are you only amazed? Question number two, when you consider Jesus, are you offended? It says there at the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, number one, among his relatives, number two, and in his own household, number three. Of course, you and I know by now that not everyone responds to Jesus in exactly the same way. In fact, in the context of his death on the cross as a payment for our sins and his glorious resurrection from the dead, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But interestingly, even before the offense of the cross made its mark on history, those who knew Jesus best found him completely unacceptable. His ministry and growing popularity, a scandal. It's interesting that you think about that. Again, as I was thinking through this particular passage, I began to try to use my sanctified imagination. I began to think, all right, these people that now are rejecting Jesus, in the previous 30 years of his life, what might have happened with some of them and with him? And I began to think, you know what? These are people who perhaps changed his diapers. These are people with whom he learned the Torah. These are the people with whom he kicked the ball around. He went fishing with them. He enjoyed table fellowship with them. He spent the night with them. He went hiking with them. At one time, they hugged him and kissed him, but not anymore. Now their arms are out like this, and everything has changed. You see, in spite of clear evidence 
They, you and I, may reject him. The last phrase is crucial here. It says there, and they took offense at him. The Holman Christian Standard, so they were offended by him. The New Living Translation, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. The message, who does he think he is? And they tripped over what little they knew about him and fell sprawling and they never got any further. That word translated offense is the word scandalizomai. It's a Greek word from which we get our English word scandal or scandalized. In other words, they were scandalized by all this talk and all this hoopla about Jesus. They were offended in their personal sensibilities. His works they could not deny, but his words they could not handle or accept. The evidence was in. It was clear. And bottom line, don't confuse us with the evidence. Our mind is already made up. I could not help again when I went through this text for many, many hours. In fact, I actually put this message together while we were in Istanbul. My mind went back to the parable of the soils. And I thought, you know what? His hometown was like the rocky soil, who immediately received it with joy, but quickly discarded what they had. And so initially, in both the Luke 4 and the Mark 6 account, first visit, second visit, they're initially positive, but it doesn't last long, and their initial uh, pride quickly devolves into embarrassment. In other words, in spite of overwhelming evidence that should convince them and you and me that he is the Christ, the Son of God, they said no. (laughs) The whole thing is too scandalous. I mean, think about it. A, A Jew from a nowhere town hung on a cross 2,000 years ago is the way that I will be accepted into eternity by God. Are you kidding me? That's the craziest thing I ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. And you're even telling me that how everyone in the world responds to that event is going to determine their eternal destiny? Well, I'm scandalized. I can't believe God is like that, and I can't believe a message like that. And again, those of us that live in the theological world are hearing those rumblings again in recent days and allegedly coming from people who say, well, I'm an evangelical who believes the Bible. Well, no, they don't. They neither believe the Bible nor are they true evangelicals because they're trying to reshape the gospel into a message that they find acceptable, not the message that you find clearly in the Scriptures. So in spite of clear evidence, you may reject him because you don't like this kind of evidence. But secondly, in spite of close proximity, you may dishonor him. In verse 4, Jesus quotes a famous maxim, a famous proverbial saying that he has made famous for us today. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. Jesus aligns himself with the prophetic tradition that, of course, culminates with John the Baptist. And again, with heartbrokenness, he acknowledges that he is being rejected by those who thought they knew him best. The ones he thought would stand with him no matter what, and who now will not stand with him at all. They knew him, but they could not explain him, and so they rejected him. His hometown, his relatives, even, look at it, even his own household cast their ballot against him. 
It's interesting to note that this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus calls himself a prophet. And like the prophets who went before him, including John the Baptist, he will meet the same fate as they. Again, the application is so clear, isn't it? Sometimes you get so close to something, you no longer see it. You spend so much time with someone, you no longer appreciate them. The fact of the matter is, for some of us in this room tonight, the fact that you've been right... Oh, no, no, let's do it this way. Danny Aiken, you went to church nine months before you left your mother's womb. That's right. And you went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday nights and Thursday nights when your mother sang in the choir. That's right. And you continue to attend every Sunday. In fact, you have attended every Sunday for your 54 years on this planet. That's right. And most of the time you're in church on Wednesday nights. That's right. And we can keep on going a long time down the road. And the fact of the matter is all of that adds up for a great big zero in terms of me having a right standing before God. In other words, you can do a lot of religious stuff and still go to hell. And you can become so familiar with Jesus, you no longer really see him and respond to him as the Lord and God and King that he really is. Familiarity breeds contempt. He is not your homeboy. He is not your buddy. He is not your soulmate. He is not some puppet on a string that you pull to get your bidding. He is not some type of prosperity theology genie that you rub real hard the bottle and out he pops and gives you what you want. That is not in the Bible. None of that. None of that. None of that. And I know he is our friend. But he is a friend who is a king. He is a friend who is the Lord. He is a friend who is the sovereign God. And I don't think in our day and time we're running the risk of placing him too high. I don't think that is our problem. In fact, I dare say our problem is very much like the city of Nazareth. And we are pulling him down to our level so we can be comfortable with him. Hear me and hear me well. His goal is never to make us comfortable. Never. You should always be uncomfortable in one sense in the presence of deity. But they weren't. And therefore, his hometown got it wrong. His relatives, at least for a while, got it wrong. The religious leaders got it wrong. Rome got it wrong. And people are still getting it wrong today. When you consider Jesus the one who is clearly revealed in the Bible, are you offended? Question number three, when you consider Jesus, are you guilty of unbelief? Rejection sometimes comes when we uh, least expect it, from where we least expect it, from whom we least expect it. It says there in verse 5, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and uh, healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and therefore he went about among the villages teaching To our knowledge, as I've said, I think a couple of times now tonight, Jesus would leave Nazareth and he would never go back again. Indeed, their rejection and unbelief made it clear he was not welcomed. I again, in my mind, asked the question, did he shake the dust off of his feet as a testimony against them, as he instructs his disciples to do in verse 11? We don't know. 
But we do know that the unbelief of the Nazarenes brought forth a twofold reaction on the part of Jesus. And we move to close tonight. Number one, unbelief is one thing that limits Jesus. The text says he did no mighty works in his hometown. It goes on to say he healed just a few. Now, the verse is simple and clear, is it not? This raised some really troubling questions for many people. How could the omnipotent Son of God be bound or limited by the unbelief of Nazareth, or for that matter, of anyone? And I believe the theological response is this. He could not because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. He could not because he would not. Indeed, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, the parallel account helps us out here where Matthew writes, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In other words, morally and spiritually, he was constrained not to reveal his power in an environment of rejection and unbelief. Uh, Come to him in faith like Jarius. Come to him in faith like the woman who bled for 12 years, and you will see him heal your body and raise your daughter from the dead. That's what you'll see. But if you reject him, you provide an environment where he not only does not do for you what he does for others, you actually send him on his way in search of others who will respond well to his gospel message. Tim Keller of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York Provided a helpful sentence here for me. I quote him. Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not Redeem. So there were no public displays with his supernatural power, most likely. He quietly and privately, as the text says, laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. But imagine what he would have done in an environment of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 is very instructive here. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Unbelief is one thing that limits Jesus. Unbelief is one thing that amazes Jesus. Twice in the Bible, our Lord is said to be amazed. It says here in the ESV in verse 6, he marveled. He was amazed because of their unbelief. In Luke chapter 7 verse 9, the Bible says he was amazed when he saw the faith of a Roman centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant and believed that Jesus could do it by long distance with just a single word. So in Luke, he is amazed by the great faith of a man. But now in Mark, he is amazed by the great unbelief of his own hometown. He marveled at their unbelief, says the ESV. He was amazed at their unbelief, says the Holman Christian Standard. He was amazed at the lack of faith. It's interesting, isn't it? The hometown was dumbfounded by Jesus, and Jesus was dumbfounded by the hometown. 
Like the pagan Gentiles in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, who could not explain or understand his healing of the demoniac and the pigs rushing over the cliff that destroyed their business, this hometown of his could not get past his familiar origins and his familiar feel. On the other hand, Jesus was dumbfounded that they would still exercise such unbelief in the face of such overwhelming evidence. By the way, it is true. The unbelief of his own hometown foreshadows and anticipates the unbelief of the entire nation. And yes, his hometown would be judged, and the entire nation would be judged in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and Israel ceased to exist as a nation. It is a shock to our system, isn't it? That a sovereign God would come to us from such a humble town, from such a humble family, from such a humble trade, and from such a humble nation. It is a scandal to be sure. But it is a reminder that God's ways are not our ways. I conclude. The preacher Phillips Brooks, who lived from 1835 to 1893, an American pastor, said it well. Familiarity breeds contempt, but only with contemptible things or among contemptible people. In other words, the contempt shown by the citizens of Nazareth said nothing about Jesus, but it said a lot about the Nazarenes. So I close again by pointing the finger back at myself and asking you to do the same. What about you? What about me? Do we sometimes show contempt toward the Jesus revealed in Scripture? Do we allow the biblical evidence to put to death our biases uh, where we try to reshape and, and, and try, we try to conceive of Jesus? Do we allow the Bible to set the agenda for who he is, whom we believe in, whom we trust? Are, are you scandalized by the simplicity of the gospel? Does it bother you that the message seems so unfair that a child molester... That a serial rapist and murderer on death row can be made right with God at the end of a horrible life by childlike faith? Does that bother you? Does that scandalize you? Do you want to say, I don't believe that? Do you want to set the agenda rather than allow Jesus to set the agenda? Or have you become so familiar with him having been raised in the church all your life? That his words are now so familiar, they no longer convict you. They no longer bother you. His miracles no longer astonish you. His death on the cross no longer strikes the chord of amazing grace. I've been there. Praise God, I don't think I'm there now, but I've been there where I've sung those songs almost in a catatonic state. And got through and sat down and then the Lord dealt with, what, what did you just sing? Did you really think about it? Do you really really believe it? Yes, familiarity can blind us to the greatness and glory of a Savior if we're not careful. Spiritually inoculated at some point in our lives, we become immune to the real thing. Bottom line, you come to Jesus on His terms, not yours. The prophet may have been without honor in his own hometown, but I pray he's not without honor in my heart. Now, praise not without honor in yours either. The stakes are high, and the consequences are of an eternal nature. Let's pray. Father, this was a very painful message for me because I hurt. I hurt for my Savior because He was God, but He was human. 
And I can imagine as he left Nazareth for the last time, he must have left with a broken heart. I, I don't doubt that tears were streaming down his face. His best friends now mocked him. His family said he was crazy. Women that he perhaps had sat in their laps and had uh, snuggled up against now turned their back on him. Familiarity had bred contempt. And they'd become so familiar with him, they no longer were able to see him for who he really is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, don't let us become like that. Don't let us be arrogant and condescending and think, well, I'm a lot smarter than they were. We're not. And I'm a lot more spiritual than they are. I don't know that either. Lord, again and again, help us to look at the Bible and see Jesus with fresh eyes of faith. To allow him to set the agenda. To let his, let, let, let your word clarify our conceptions. That we would indeed say, as Mark says, Jesus, oh, I know who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is my Messiah, and he is my Lord, he is my Savior, he is my Master, and he is my King. And may we not only say that, but may we live in such a way that bears witness that our confession is true. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.